Amen. Amen. Hey, so we've come to the, we're going to wrap up 2 Corinthians here this morning. We've come to the close of this letter. And uh, in this letter, the Apostle Paul has opened up his heart to the church. He's uh, explained his ministry. He's answered the accusations that were made against him. He's encouraged the church. He's, he's sought to coax God's people uh, onto maturity and onto growth in Christ. And as we're going to see in this closing section, Paul's going to start to talk about his, his next visit to Corinth. And uh, as he does, he's going to share his hope that this, this visit would not be a painful one, but rather that they would heed the words of that which he has uh, shared. And so as he wraps things up and, and ties a bow on this letter that he's written to the church, he's just going to encourage them and warn them to heed the things that he has spoken. Now over the past few chapters, as Paul has uh, defended his ministry, we've seen him lower himself to something that, that he would boast about his ministry and assert the legitimacy of his ministry uh, to back himself up against these so-called super apostles that were back in Corinth. And the thing is, is that all along as Paul has boasted, and we're going to see this again this morning, he has called such things uh, foolish. And so when he's boasted, he hasn't boasted in the things that you or I might boast about or in human strength. Rather, he's, he's boasted in his weakness to show how Christ worked in him, even though... You know, he was a weak man. When he boasted about the revelations that he had received from the Lord and the visions, he shared how those revelations and visions came with a thorn. A thorn in his flesh that kept him from becoming proud. A thorn in his flesh that, that pushed him to the place of prayer. And that exposed his weakness. And drove him to rely on Christ's strength and to face his own weaknesses. And so now he, he says in verse 11, actually, let's pick it up here in chapter 12, verse 11. He says, I have been a fool, but you forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me of this wrong. And so Paul, Paul admits to the folly of human boasting. He uh, admits to the foolishness of adopting the same practice of the so-called uh, super apostles, his opponents in Corinth. But by doing so, he paints the false teachers, these super apostles, uh, with the same brush. Like he, they too are fools. But unlike Paul, they take their boasting serious as they boast about their strengths. Paul was just playing the part of the fool. They were the true fools. And the, Corinth, the Corinthians were fools because they were led astray by these false teachers. And so, you know, as, as we know about Paul and as we read, he, he shouldn't have had to defend himself against these people. You know, he said, I ought to have been commended by you. Not in any way am I inferior to these super apostles. You know, the church in Corinth owed their lives to Paul because he had come to that city and preached the gospel. And many of them had come to faith through his teaching and through his preaching. 
He had done miraculous signs among them, signs and wonders, proving his apostleship. He had preserved and or persevered in the, the face of resistance. And it had cost the church nothing as we've seen throughout 2 Corinthians. He put no financial burden on them. He, he worked with his own hands. And he, so he sarcastically uh, asked them for their forgiveness. I like Paul that way. On myself, I didn't burden you. Forgive me that I didn't take your money is what he's saying. <laughs> Forgive me this wrong. Check out verse 14. He says, here for the third time, I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So as Paul is getting ready uh, for this next trip to Corinth, he again hits this touchy subject that's been going on with him and the Corinthians. And it's, it's about finances and about their support of his ministry. And he repeats this adamant refusal to take uh, their financial support. He says, no, I'm, I'm not going to break that pattern. I'm going to continue to come here and serve you. Now to me, that's kind of shocking, isn't it? I mean, when you just think of so many ministries, you know, I, there's one ministry that I once saw a book from and I thought I'd like to read that book. And it was supposed to, you know, give a little gift. And so I gave 25 bucks and I got, and you know, the number of letters that I've got gotten requesting money because I got the one book and gave 25 bucks. I mean, they've lost money on me. That's for certain. And it's shocking to think about Paul, his refusal to take money, but what his refusal to take money actually underlines, it, it underlines what he really wants. What does Paul really want? And he says this, I want you. I want you. I want your hearts. I'm not interested in your money. I'm interested in you. What a shocking model for ministry. You know, Paul compares his relationship uh, with the Corinthians to that of a parent with their child. Paul, Paul is their spiritual father. This church is like his children. You know, what is the greatest thing a Christian father can receive from his children? It's to know this, that his kids serve the Lord. The Apostle John said this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Isn't that the greatest joy for a parent? To know that your kids are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I don't need anything else. I want you. I want to know that Christ has your heart. Paul's words have been interpreted this way. I seek things souls instead of goods, instead of gold, salvation. See, that is the true reflection of our father who is in heaven. That is the true reflection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Alan Redpath said this, the wonderful marvel of the grace of God to your heart is that Jesus wants to have you with all your problems, with all your failures, with all your defeats, Everything that he knows only too well about you and about which he can do literally nothing until he has you. Jesus Christ wants to have all of you. He wants all of you. And like Paul, he wants to lead us to that place where we can say, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Those things in life there were, I would say, you know, there are things in life that just 
set themselves up as rivals to Jesus Christ. Rivals competing for the attention of our heart. And you know, those rivals to Jesus Christ have no qualms whatsoever about what they might get from you. They'll take whatever they can get. Kind of like the false teachers in Corinth. Now Jesus, on the other hand, is satisfied with nothing unless he has all of you. Look what Paul says. He says in verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? You know, does that not sound like Jesus Christ whose life was spent on the cross? Does that not sound like Jesus Christ who conquered death and conquered the grave to purchase you? He does not want just the part. He wants the whole. And when he comes, I guess the question is, will he find a church willing to give simply of finances and yet whose hearts are far from him and given over to things of idolatry? See, the church should have recognized Paul's parental love for them. And you know, at least they could have, the least they could have done is love him back. You know, it's, it's, it's a funny thing about human nature that sometimes the more you love a person, the less they love you back. Have you ever experienced that? You know, if, if someone is boastful and arrogant and full of pride, sometimes people will give their love and devotion to that person before they give their love and devotion to a person who actually loves them. Paul says, I'm willing to spend my life for the church. Jesus said this, there's no greater love that a man lay down his life for another. What do you do when someone, um, the more you love someone, the less they love you back. What do you do? Well, you know, I would say this, don't be surprised. That's for certain. (laughs) Don't be surprised when you love someone more and they love you less back in return. You know, it's a really nice thing when you give to someone and they give back and they love you back in return, but really there is no cost to that kind of love, is there? When they love back, when I love them, there's no cost to that. See, the greatest kind of love and giving is when we love and we give and we get nothing in return. That's when we begin to lay up treasures in heaven. That's when the Holy Spirit begins to work and really shape in us the heart and the image and conform us to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul's talking as a parent and I would say, you know, every parent knows the reality of sacrificially giving to your children and getting nothing back. You know, you do something wonderful for your kids and, uh, you know, you you hope that they're going to respond in such a great way and, you know, what do they do? They say, well, my friend's parent did it this way. <laughs> they got that. Um, and as a parent, what do we do? Just because our, our child doesn't give us the response that we want, do we make the decision that we're going to stop giving to them? No, because it's your child. And our father who is in heaven gives and he gives because we are his children. He loves us. And it's a wonderful thing when a child thanks their parent and and gives back love and expression for what the parent has done. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And Paul says this, I'll spend my life for you. See, your father who is in heaven is after one thing. He's after you. Jesus Christ is after you. 
and he hopes for your love in return. Paul says this in verse 16, but granting that I myself did not burden you. I was crafty. You say, and I got the better of you by deceit. Now, again, the attitude of those who uh, opposed Paul was, well, maybe he's just setting us up. He didn't take our money before. So maybe he's just setting us up so he can collect more later. Paul simply says, no, look it. That's not my game. I'm not acting and crafting this or deceit. He goes on verse 17. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I've urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. See, Paul sent Titus and Titus ministered to them in the same, with the same mentality that Paul had. There was no ulterior motives with these men. They were simply seeking to be a blessing to build up the church. What a great example. Have you ever had somebody invite you over for dinner and you think to yourself, sweet, make a new friend here, get to have a meal out and you get yourself ready and get everything all together and make your way over to their home and you're warmly greeted and you sit down and you're having a nice meal and then they pull out the Amway products. Some call it a pyramid scheme, but I call it a great business opportunity. <laughs> you know, exceptional products, low costs, high returns. Your success will be rewarded. Now, I just need the numbers of your 100 closest friends, you know? You're like, what the heck? Come on, seriously? I thought you wanted to be my friend. And apparently there were ulterior motives to this friendship. See, that kind of friend is not interested in you, but what they can get out of you. And it's important that God's people don't operate on those levels, that we don't operate with such craftiness. See, the world is always trying to put their finger on what the agenda of the church is. What, what is with those Christians? What's their agenda? Look, love people and befriend them genuinely as Christ did to you. Love them genuinely. Our goal is simple. We want people to come to Christ and to be built up in their faith. We want them to know that God loves them. We don't need to use craftiness or deceit to communicate those things. We do it genuinely out of a heart for people. And Paul had one goal all along. He had one goal all along, the upbuilding of this church. And if they read this letter, they were actually mistaken if they thought Paul was defending himself because that was just the surface. There was something far deeper below the surface. His goal, his aim, the actual aim and focus of everything that he did was for their upbuilding their construction, the building up and the edification of God's people's faith. But as he sought to do that, and as he considered the Corinthian church, as he wraps up this letter, Paul had some fears. Check it out, verse 20. He said, I fear 
that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, that you may not find me as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and conceit and disorder. Paul says, my fear is I will not find what I'm hoping to find when I get to Corinth. See, the Corinthians, I mean, you read these letter, the letter of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and you, you, you certainly get this idea that this, these churches were not, this church was known for its infighting, known for its factions. You know, you go back to 1 Corinthians and you read about how some were making the claim, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, no, I'm of Peter, no, I'm of Jesus, the really spiritual ones. They, there was factions, there was a lack of love in this congregation, hence the need for 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. And all of these sins that Paul lists in verse 20, they ha- look at them, they have to do with the relationship of God's people one to another. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. He says in verse 21, some more fears. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. That I may have to mourn over the many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity. Sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul's saying, you know what? Will I grieve like at the death of a loved one because of the immoral practices that I find amongst God's people? See, if the Corinthians were stuck in their thinking and if they continued to practice the things of the culture that surrounded them, Paul said, I will be humbled when I show up amongst you because obviously I'm not the spiritual father that I thought I was. Obviously I'm not the pastor or the apostle that I thought I was. What does it say about me when God's people are given over to such immorality? Not that Paul was expecting perfection. I mean, don't think that. Look, God's people, you and I, we sin. We sin. Perfection is certainly the goal and it's the aim. But if we expect perfection from God's people, then I promise you, God's people and the church will disappoint you. Paul was not looking for perfection. What was he looking for? He was looking for a heart of repentance amongst the church and amongst God's people. See, repentance involves a turning from our sin with contrition to God. To turn from sin and to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. It speaks of, repentance speaks of a change of mind. And Paul says, my hope is is that your mind is going to be changing in regards to things of impurity and sexual immorality and sensuality and these things that you have practiced. You need to turn from them and turn faith to Jesus Christ. Paul's heart was this. Does this church that I've planted and pastored have a changing attitude towards sin? Or do they continue to embrace such things in their life? I was challenged as I thought about this and I want to ask you, you know, is there a sin in your life with which you have gained a level of comfort? Sin that you've learned to just coexist with. Oh, it used to bother you. You know, you used to blow it in that area 
and against the Lord and you would turn with contrition and repentance and you turned in faith to Jesus Christ and you sought his forgiveness. But see, what can happen to us over the years is that as we battle with certain sins, we can begin to develop this attitude of comfort. What once, you know, bothered us so badly and upset our spiritual equilibrium is now just feels like a hiccup. Where before that sin felt like it train wrecked my life, now it just feels like a speed bump. And that should not be for God's people. Sin is not your friend. Do not smell, do not taste, do not touch because the penalty of sin is death. And even when we settle the issue of salvation and receive the gift of eternal life from Jesus Christ, we as believers can develop a comfort level with our sin that is unhealthy. And some issue of sin, even though eternity is settled, will still produce death in our lives. Give birth to death. Maybe not eternal death, but the death of our joy, the death of our victory in Christ, the death of our sensitivity to the work of the Holy Spirit, the death of, our, of a hunger to see people one to Christ, the death of our, our, our hope, maybe the death of a relationship, maybe the death of our ministry. Are we comfortable with our sin? Paul said, I want you. I want you. And Christ wants you. You know, as I was working through this text, I, I, I split it into two parts for my own thinking in my own mind. And the first point was this, God wants you. You know, let that issue be settled for you. There's no need to question that. God wants you. He isn't selling Amway, just to be clear. No Amway gig, okay? It's not some pyramid scheme. God loves you and he wants you for you because he created you and he made you in his image. He's not after what he can get out of you, but you. As the scripture tells us, for God so loved the world that he, that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, Jesus is the perfect expression of God's desire for you. He's the perfect expression of God's love for you. So settle it in your heart. God wants you. But the second part of this text as we go into chapter 13 reminds us of this. That it's important that God's people take time to examine themselves. Check it out in verse 1. Chapter 13. Paul says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witness, witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Paul says, I, I'm coming again. And hopefully you're getting the message, because if not, I will not spare you when I come. Now, you know, I kind of like, a different Paul. <laughs> the no, the, you know, this is the no fooling around Paul. I think I like the God loves you Paul a little better. He, I'm a little more comfortable with him, but, but this is the no fooling around Paul. He says, I, I, I warn you. 
I warn you, and when I come, I will not spare you if you are given over to these things. Verse 3 says, Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Paul has had this continual emphasis on his weaknesses. As we've been going through these last number of chapters, he keeps talking about his weaknesses, his thorns. But he says, like Jesus Christ, I am strong when I appear to be weak. You know, you think of the cross. On the cross, Jesus manifested weakness. That's what the outside perception was, that the cross is weakness. But we know from the scripture that the cross is not weakness. The cross is the power of God. Not the weakness of God. The cross is the power of God. See, by the standards of the world, the cross is weakness. As Jesus hung there, people viewed him as being weak. By the standards of the world, Paul appeared to be weak with all his issues. His health things, his this, his that. But by the standards of the Lord, the cross is the power of God. By the standards of the Lord, Jesus is the power of God. And the power of God was being manifest through the weakness of Paul. Now, why is Paul talking so tough? He's talking tough because the Corinthians just weren't getting it. As he writes this letter, he's concerned that they're not getting it. Concerned that the false teachers have pulled the wool over their eyes. So he says in verse 5, a great verse. Underline it, circle it, bracket. Man, theme verse for life. It's a great one. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now it is appropriate that we ask ourselves a question. It's a sobering question. But it's one that is worth asking regularly. Am I really a Christian? Am I really a Christian? You know, it's very important that you gain an assurance of your salvation. It's important that when Satan comes and he attacks you and questions the reality of your salvation, that you are equipped from the word of God with the promises of God to tear down his arguments. At the same time, we know the reality that many people who believe themselves to be Christians, whether by assumption or whether by presumption, are not. You know, this church has a million dollar view, doesn't it? It's awesome. That's my office right there. Sometimes it's tough to get work done around here. You know, and they're pile driving things and expanding the dock. Man, there's all sorts of things happening. It can be distracting. One of the things that distracts me in this office is when Coastal Craft launches a new boat. I begin to dream and covet. Amen. Amen. (laughs) You know, many times I've watched them launch a new yacht from this place. 
And it's a really cool thing. They take that boat out for sea trials. And there are a lot of boats in this community. You know, you you just drive around. Maybe you have one in your yard that's turned into a lawn ornament. And, And the reason why it is there in your yard is because it's not seaworthy. It's not seaworthy. See, my mom's smiling because I know she's got one in her yard. <laughs> See, when Coastal Craft launches a yacht, I don't know what, exactly what the process is that they go through. I don't, know what, I don't know exactly all that they're testing, but it's a test when they put the boat in the water. First of all, you got to know if the thing floats. That's important. Does the navigation system work? How does the engine perform? They take that boat out and they run them back and forth here. And you're like, wow, look at that thing on top of the water flying back and forth. I need one of those. You know, they test. Does the electrical system work? Does all the wonderful things that this yacht has been designed to do, does it function for the owner? And it matters because the boat is designed to carry people for pleasure, to move them around. And salvation is kind of like a boat. Salvation carries you from this life into the next. And you better be certain your boat floats. And Paul says you need to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. You know, from my office all day long, I can watch and observe boats coming in and out of this harbor. And you know, I watch one go out and again, I think to myself, man, I wish that was my boat. (laughs) I watch another one go out and I think, seriously? Why would you paint your boat that color? (laughs) I watch another one go out and I think, man, you wouldn't catch me on that boat. That person's going down, man, if the waves pick up. They are hooped. But see, there's a fundamental difference between me and the boaters. And that's this. They're on the water, and I'm sitting in my office. They have a boat, and I don't. And there's a serious danger for us that we would fall into the same sort of trap, this trap of self-deception, like what was happening in Corinth. What were they doing? They were pointing the finger at Paul. Questioning his legitimacy. And all along, three fingers pointing right back at themselves. See, they were carefully criticizing and examining the viewpoint of another. And they were failing to turn the searchlight of God's word upon their own hearts. And upon their own lives. I stumbled upon these questions for checking your heart out. I want to read them to you. They're uncomfortable. Ready? Ready or not? Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am a better man than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Am I honest in all my acts or words or do I exaggerate? Do I confidently pass on to another what was told me in confidence? Can I be trusted? Am I a slave to dress 
or to friends or to work or to habits? Am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Did the Bible, God's word, live in me today? Do I give my time to, do I give God's word time to speak to me every day? Am I enjoying prayer? When did I last speak to somebody else with the object of trying to win that person to Christ? Am I making contacts with other people for the master's glory? Do I pray about how I spend my money? Do I get in bed on time and get up on time? Do I disobey God in anything? Do I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? Am I defeated in any part of my life? Jealous, impure, critical, irritable, touchy, or distrustful? How do I spend my spare time? Am I proud? Do I thank God that I am not as other people, especially as the Pharisees who despise the publican? Is there anybody whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold resentment toward, or disregard? If so, what am I doing about it? Do I grumble and complain constantly? Is Christ real to me? Those are uncomfortable, aren't they? Those questions find you out as they find me out? Do they make you angry and resentful? They come straight from the Puritans. <laughs> the question that must be settled for each one of us today is this. Am I in the faith? Is Christ in me? Have I come to him a sinner who needs to experience grace and mercy the grace and mercy that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Am I living by faith in Jesus Christ? Am I experiencing the fullness of his grace upon grace? See, as Paul talked about these things, the sins of God's people, he was pointing out that an, unho an unholy life simply points to the evidence of an unchanged heart. And an unchanged heart is evidence of an unsaved soul. You know, I go through that list of questions and I sense the great falling short of my own life. What God requires and what his, the call of his glory is. But it's well said that for every look within that you take, you should take 10 looks to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. How is the gospel forming and transforming your heart? See, if you aren't daily admitting to yourself that you are a mess and that you are in desperate need for the forgiving and transforming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, if the evidence of those questions does not cause you to abandon your confidence in yourself, abandon the confidence in your own righteousness, then what you will have to do is this, is you will have to convince yourself that you're okay. How do you do that? Well, you just do this. You start pointing your finger. Point your finger at 
the evidence of a fallen world and the people and the situations and the relationships and the churches that are broken and flawed. And you tell yourself again and again, I'm not the problem here. Look at all these problems. I'm not the problem. And you tell yourself that you don't need to change that if the circumstances were different, you know, and daily you, you, you defend yourself, you know, it's been called, you, you activate the inner lawyer. All of us have one of those. They work pro bono for your benefit. You activate the inner lawyer. But what you really need to do and what I need to do is to cast yourself on the mercy of the one true savior. Don't be your own savior. Don't resist the grace of God. Don't ignore the clear evidence. Surrender to Jesus Christ. Paul says, test yourselves. See if you be in the faith. Look, is Jesus Christ in you? That's the question. Is Jesus Christ in you? And it's not a matter of religion. It's, it's about relationship. It's not about theology, okay? It's about intimacy. It's not about intellectually knowing Jesus Christ, but it's about knowing him personally. Is Christ in you? It's important that we take time and search our hearts. Allow God's word to search our hearts. Paul says in verse six, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. To me, that's interesting because he, he's not talking about them. He says, you search your own heart and I hope you'll find I haven't failed the test. Wow, that's kind of funny. But you know what's true is you begin to search your own heart and check to see that Christ is in you. Your attitude begins to change towards other people, doesn't it? Verse seven, he says, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. That we may have seemed to have failed. Look into yourself. Test yourself. See how Christ lives in us, he says. Verse 8. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Look, Paul, Paul's just saying this. If, if my weakness can contribute to your strength, then I will be glad. I want you to be restored. I want you to walk in repentance. I want you to be built up in Christ. Verse 10. He says, for this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in the use of my authority, that the Lord has given me for the building, for building up and not tearing down. You know, I, again, you know, Paul, just hear his heart. I want to see you make corrections. I want to see you built up. I don't want to tear you down. Do these things. Know, know that God wants you and turn towards him in repentance. And through to the end of the chapter, he says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace and the God of love and the and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. 
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I love what happens from the end of chapter 12 to the end of chapter 13 as Paul points out his fears and then invites God's people to examine their lives and to test themselves. And then when he talked about all these broken relationship things, quarreling, fighting, at the end, he says, rejoice, aim for restoration. It's, it's, it, everything's flipped upside down. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace be with you all. This is a great verse right at the end there, verse 14. It shows us the Trinity. Check it out. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I like the trinity of what God brings. Do you see what he brings? Grace, love, and fellowship. God's people, I want to encourage you today. God is for you. He is not against you. He wants you. He wants you.